In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Charles Munn's quest to save the Amazon rests on a simple premise. If people have a peak experience in nature, they'll be more invested in protecting it. Over the past four decades, the conservation biologist has helped to preserve over 12 million acres of rainforest in South America, home to what he describes as the most biologically diverse protected areas on Earth. And I've been there. I went to Peru with Charles Munn in 2000 to shoot a documentary for TNT directed by the great Robert Drew. Munn's tours are memorable, but the byproducts are better. Local jobs, community engagement, and a surge in the value of the rainforest. Still, for the son of a legendary Palm Beach family, it's a delicate balance between access and exploitation one he prepared for in a different type of jungle. I was working for the Bronx Zoo, for the field division of the Bronx Zoo, which is the headquarters of really what calls itself the Wildlife Conservation Society. Before the New York uh, Well, it was, it was the New York Society. Zoological Society originally, right. and it has several zoos in the aquarium, you know, the Central Park Zoo, the Bronx Zoo. The International Division does conservation field work, research on rare species wildlife species in mostly the tropics and, and some also temperate latitudes, China, a lot of, a lot of uh, countries around the world. Usually 70 countries they work in doing field conservation. So they're one of the biggest conservation groups in the world. But WCS. Yeah, WCS. And where are they headquartered? In the Bronx? Well, they're, they're headquarters of the Bronx Zoo, yes. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And how long had you been working with them at the point that I met you? I've been working for them for 16 years at that point. I was working in the Amazon the whole time. My specialty was the Amazon and other parts of tropical South America. And, and you grew up in suburban D.C.? Uh, the Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. The Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. You lived on a piece of property that was adjacent to some reserve that you became? Well, I have a small conservation easement that I protected um, 50 acres from development. It was going to be turned into 20 or 30 houses. And I was able to buy it when I was young and protect it. And it has uh, oak trees and other uh, large deciduous trees that are more than three feet thick. And so there is, I think it's the tallest, biggest uh, forest. It's not a big forest, but it's, uh, you know, it's 50 acres. But I think it's the biggest trees within a half an hour of the Amtrak line between New York and Washington, I think. I think they're bigger than in any of the protected areas of the Maryland state or, or Pennsylvania or New York. 
what was it about you when you were that age that you decided you wanted to take money of yours and buy land and preserve? How old were you when you executed that deal? Uh, let's see. I think I must have been 16 or 17. I had to convince my trustee to dip into what was going to be resources, yeah, yeah, which I wasn't supposed to be able to do. But uh, since it was not a bad thing to do, he eventually agreed because I was already fanatical about protecting nature. And what do you think it was? I mean, most 16-year-olds, I think, isn't saying, oh, let's go buy this 50 acres of land with these wonderful trees adjacent to the Amtrak line and preserve it. Well, why were you heading in that direction? I just think I had been hypnotized by some very beautiful songbirds when I was a nine-year-old boy. And, Truly. Uh, and yeah, they, they just captivated me. And I always felt since then that if I could, if other people could see the birds as, and other beautiful animals as well as I did, they would also fall in love with them and want to protect the habitat. So it's as simple as that. Tell us about Chandler Robbins. Well, Chandler Robbins is appropriately named Robbins. He was a great ornithologist, who were one of the best bird guides in the history of the world. And uh, he was worked for the U.S. government as a field biologist, as a bird scientist for them in Laurel, Maryland. When I was a young boy, he was our, our idol because he would come up in, to the uh, Maryland Ornithological Society meetings every May in Ocean City, and he would be like the god when he would appear. Right. So I'd go out birding with him, you know, try to tag along with him and other serious older birders and see if I could learn something. But, but where does this birding begin? Where does your passion for this begin? Well, it's the white-throated sparrow and the myrtle <laughs> warbler in breeding plumage specifically. If you see either of those in breeding plumage up close, it will change your life forever. And you were how old when they changed your life? At nine. And you're sitting in the backyard of your home, your family's home? Actually, the white-throated sparrow was at the neighbor's bird feeder. Because in the wintertime, they have a boring plumage. But then they switch to their breeding plumage, and that's pretty spectacular. And the myrtle warbler comes through in May uh, every year. It flies up through New York and Central Park in uh, probably May 10th or so. And uh, that was just an amazing bird. And I had no idea that it was not just one kind of warbler. There were like 40 kinds of warblers you could see in one morning, all heading up to Canada to breed in the summer. So I was amazed. All these beautiful butterflies almost of the bird world were coming through Maryland and going through New York up to Canada. I didn't even know they were there until my, my stepbrother actually uh, turned me on to this. He's, he was a birder. He was in a, in a circle of serious birders, one of whom was one of the biggest bird listers in the world, the Kaysner brothers, actually both of the Kaysner brothers. So Who were they? The Kaysner's brothers were from Baltimore. and they were some Birders of the, as well. Yeah, I think they're maybe in the top 10 of the most bird species seen in, in their lives in the world. One of them works for the State Department. The other one works, I think, for McCormick Spices so they can travel the world. They each have their excuse to travel the world so they can bird more. And and your your stepbrother was how much older than you? He was two years older than me. So he's 11. Yeah. Describe Describe to me the Munn household that the 11-year-old boy and the 9-year-old boy are so passionate about birding. Well, he was in this circle. Drum, my stepbrother, was in this circle with the Kaysner brothers, and they were so fanatical. So he, he was fanatical because he was in the same school with them. And then he started showing me these things. I said, wow, I, what? These things are around here? How come no, no one ever told me before? Were you raised by people that were fond of this? Not particularly. I mean, yeah. my mother uh, liked, uh, liked nature. My father died when I was three. So. Right. Were you raised by a stepfather? Yes, indeed, yeah. And was he a naturalist? Well, he liked nature also, but it was really a drum and the Kaysner brothers, that whole, that whole circle that I sort of got involved with, and, and that, that, they turned me on to birding. It wasn't either of my parents particularly. Or... No. When you finish school as a, as a young man and you're about to go to college, what, what, what becomes the path to you then? What do you decide you want to do? 
I only applied to two colleges, and I got into both, and I chose the, the one that had better bird watching. Let's which was? Out, which was Princeton. Out there in Hopewell Junction in that area, there's better bird watching? Well, yeah, there was the, uh, the, the Institute for Advanced Study has a, a beautiful forest right next to the Princeton University, yeah, where Einstein used to walk and stuff to think about relativity and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Other flying things. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so you went there and got a degree in biology. I did. Mm-hmm. And then after that, what did you do? I uh, wanted to continue working uh, on bird science, and I went to Oxford, got a master's there, came back to Princeton, did a PhD, always in the Amazon. I got stuck with the Amazon. I got the Amazon bug, you might say, although in the good way. I, I became obsessed with, with working in Amazon forests. When did you first go there? In 76. You were how old? 21, I guess. I went with uh, graduate students from Princeton. Uh, I was a senior undergraduate and with uh, John Turborg, who was the professor that we all idolized, who was working in the Peruvian Amazon. So I was able to tag along with him as a senior undergraduate. You're 21 and you're with Terborg in the Amazon. Exactly. The Peruvian Amazon. Mm-hmm. Is that the place to go if you want to study birds is the, as opposed to the Brazilian? Well, uh, or the... Uh, let's see. The, the Amazon basin is uh, – the Amazon rainforest is the size of the 48 states. Right. 22% of it has been cut, but 78% is still standing. That's a lot of forest. And so Brazil has the bulk of it, but after Brazil, it's Peru. Peru has two Californias worth of rainforest. That's right. a lot of rainforest. And so it is some of the highest quality rainforest in terms of species diversity and being pristine. A lot of the uncontacted Indian tribes left in the Amazon are in the Peruvian Amazon rather mm. than Brazil. Sure. Your work down there becomes what? Well, it's a, if you give a mouse a cookie, I mean, it's a, one thing leads to another sort of inexorably. So if you're interested in birds and working in the Amazon is the, one of the most amazing things you can do if you're a bird scientist because the bird diversity there is much higher than, than anywhere else in the world. You'll have 500 species of birds in just a few square miles. There are only 10,000 in the whole planet. And the one park I worked in has 1,000 species of birds. The entire U.S. and Canada has about 850 so this one park about the size of Massachusetts has, a thousand, has 10 percent of all the bird species in the world. So once you're working there, you become spoiled. You, you, if you're an ornithologist or a bird scientist, you really want to continue working in such it's a rich habitat. It's station of birds. Pretty much. And uh, I, I was lucky enough to work on mixed species flocks. What does that mean? Well, there are, of the 500 bird species, 330 live in the forest. Others live in lakes and riverbanks and things. But the 330 that live in the forest, a third of them, more than 100 species, live in mixed species flocks. So it's a very uh, strange and amazing thing to see. You can have 70 species of birds in one flock at the same time. So, and, it, and the best bird watching in those flocks is in the middle of the day. So it's like contrary. Oh, you have to get up early at dawn to see the birds. Well, in the case of the flocks, the best flocks to bird watch are in the middle of the day. In the Amazon, you should be bird watching in the middle of the day and have a late morning snack and a, and a mid-afternoon snack. You should actually bird watch all through the middle of the day. What's the area in the United States, even just the 48, if you will, that has the most diversity of bird species? The uh, part of the U.S. that has the most uh, diversity of bird species would be Texas and California. And they're amazing uh, uh, circles of, of crack birders in both states. And they always try to beat each other in, the, in, in annual counts, Christmas counts, to try to see who wins. I think it, usually some of the Texas birding groups tend to win, which is the most number of birds you can see in one day. So uh, Texas is, is typically the winner. When I met you in um, 2000, my then wife and I flew from uh, New York to Miami. And then on to Peru and uh, mm-hmm. Puerto Maldonado, which I'm told has changed dramatically. Well, it's gotten a lot bigger. Yeah. And then we went a very long journey on the boat up the river. 
We get to this place. Had you ever been there before? Had you worked with those people before? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a... a Campbell Potter was a place you'd frequented. That was a research site that I stumbled upon thanks to some tips from a local Bolivian Indian, actually, who was living in that part of the Amazon. He was living... Bolivia has a lot of Amazon forests, too. They have about one and a half Californias worth, whereas Peru only has two Californias worth. Right. So he, he tipped me off about that clay lick where we watched macaws and parrots eating. And uh, I thought he was kidding me. But when I started to you know, ask him difficult questions, he could answer them really quickly. And so I said, well, he's on to something. So I went up and looked at that area. So I'd found that area a few years earlier thanks to local informants, which is the way we get everything done is by relying on local people to give us great information that they don't even know is that interesting. So when we went there, I mean, the film is what it is. Bob Drew, the famous uh, documentarian, and his wife, Anne, we make a movie about the illegal market in uh, exotic birds from that area. And how would you compare now what's going on in that department to what we experienced 17 years ago? Is it still a huge problem? Actually, that part of the Peruvian Amazon, uh, the problem was already declining when, when we visited because uh, in part because of your visit uh, and uh, brought attention to the area. And so there was more resources and more, more travelers visited the area. So the major concentrations of macaws and parrots at the clay licks uh, were all protected at that point by new parks. And so really the black market bird trade out of southern Peru basically had stopped. It was more of a question of central and northern Amazon of Peru because the Peruvian Amazon is so enormous. So actually, uh, it, things have gotten much, much better since uh, you visited. What was the smuggling like back then? They were bringing those birds into the country. How? Well, in fact, uh, the major smuggling of parrots would have been more out of Mexico and Central American countries up through uh, the border into the U.S., sneaking them into the U.S. The smuggling of parrots wasn't so much from South America to the U.S. There was a, a, a legal uh, export from some countries, not from Peru, but say Bolivia next door, until the 1980s. And in 1992, the U.S. passed a law outlawing the importation of wild-caught exotic birds. And the New York Zoological Society played a role in that. So did I in helping pass the national law because there were already some state laws prohibiting exotic bird importation. So that that put an end to a lot of the uh, trapping because people couldn't sell it to the U.S. anymore. We actually were greener than the European Union. The European Union took many years before they finally uh, shut down the, uh, the sort of nasty, cruel bird trade. When people would bring them in, how would they bring them in? Well, they would typically sneak them in uh, drugged uh, so that they uh, wouldn't be squawking and, and wiggling and drawing attention to themselves. So they would, they would have them in suitcases or in uh, little, in little uh, plastic PVC pipes that would be hidden maybe in parts of a car if you're driving across the border. One guy who was smuggling ridiculously rare, very valuable macaws out of uh, Bolivia, he was, uh, and Paraguay, in fact, he was uh, sticking them in his hand luggage. He worked for Paraguay National Airlines as a cabin steward. So he was sneaking them in his carry-on, drugged, and then uh, selling them uh, to Until specific... Until one woke up one day uh, <laughs> Well, actually, his, his, um, his buyer, as it were, the, the person that was hiring him to transport them as a mule to Europe because he would fly them to Europe, uh, he, he was caught. He was busted in the late 80s. And then so that, uh, that made it difficult for that to continue. So actually, the bird smuggling has declined a lot, uh, mm -hmm. really. It's, it's good news. Do you have kids? I do. And how old are your kids now? 33 and 29 <laughs> and 20 and two 17-year-old twins. No. Indeed. 
Five kids. Indeed. And are any of them in the family business, so to speak? Well, I would say yes. Two or three of them are really serious about going into the family business. One of them is uh, studying at Cornell Hotel School because we're involved in in creating green jobs through ecotourism, which is a form of uh, service industry. Like the floatels. Mm-hmm. So when I leave, um, you know, when we're done with the with the television show, what do you do after that? When do you start getting into the eco? You weren't in the ecotourism business then, were you? We were using uh, the argument of ecotourism development as the excuse for trying to uh, convince politicians it was worth creating these parks. In the case of Tambapata, it's good that we talk about Tambapata specifically. Uh, that Connecticut-sized park now has about a half a million bed nights of foreign visitors per year. And it's the best land use economically of that area, which is pretty remote and hard to get to, turns out to be ecotourism. And so we were right. And the wildlifers recovered, and there are thousands and thousands of jobs now related to this. And so that actually is a bulwark against the mining that's a little bit further west to keep the mining mess from flowing over into this area. So that's a big success. And you saw it when it was kind of in the early stages. What do you think people in this country can do who want to have any kind of a participation in the solution here? Well, I think I think there have been uh, quite a bit of success um, in the last, say, five or ten years in convincing uh, large retailers. Uh, I'm not sure exactly if it's Home Depot and Lowe's or a number of them, I think, have taken a pledge to only sell wood from sustainable sources that actually can be traced to be sustainable as opposed to being laundered. And I think a lot of that initiative came from the World Wildlife Fund. They they convinced industry to police itself to make it easier for – And you believe you, they are? I think they are. For you and I to do the right thing, to buy something that's sustainable. Now, producing trees and fiber is one thing that's very important in the Amazon. I'm a big believer in creating parks and, and Indian reserves and, and, and protecting Let's them with ecotourism. Uh, so that's also part of it. It's not the only thing, but uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that there are 74 airports in the Amazon that have regular jet flights. A lot of people will guess there are five or ten. Even that, they'll think that's high. But in fact, it's 74. If 78% of the Amazon is still in forest, more than half of that is in protected areas. It's probably 30 times or 50 times more protected areas by percentage than the U.S. has. And that's extraordinary. And about half of that protected area is owned by Indians or maybe 60 percent, 40 percent is in biological reserves. You can get to these protected areas within a half a day from one of these 74 airports. And so ecotourism has to be part of the mix because you only need to have one lodge in partnership even with Indians, local Indians, at the mouth of a river of a million-acre rainforest park. And that one small lodge can have a turnover of maybe one or two million dollars a year and it protects a million acres behind it because it keeps people from getting in behind it. So it's a, it's a very inexpensive way to protect enormous pieces of forest. And anything you can do that can slow down deforestation will help uh, slow down uh, climate change because uh, uh, burning rainforest, especially in Brazil and some other countries, but Indonesia, it was about equivalent to the carbon released by the entire transport sector in the entire world. It's about 20% of all carbon releases from burning rainforest. Anything you can do to slow that is useful. So that's why I try to create parks and try to create green jobs related to protecting the parks. And you, would you say, from your experience, are the primary activities that are occurring that they're burning this rainforest? Uh, logging, uh, agriculture, oh, they, beef, cattle? Yeah, I mean, a certain amount of logging, when done properly, is not very destructive. Right. If you're taking five, six, seven species of trees, it doesn't tend to be too destructive, especially if you 
minimize the number of, of logging tracks or for, for the heavy equipment and you fell the tree in exactly the right direction. You've cut the vines attached to it so it doesn't bring down a bunch of other trees next to it. So things like that can reduce the impact of logging enormously. But as soon as you start to do 12, 15, 18 species of trees, you're destroying so much of the canopy that it, you're really opening up the forest to desiccation and, and it becomes like a tinderbox. It can actually catch fire in the dry season. What else are they doing there once well, it's cut down? Well, the, when a lot of forest is cleared for cattle ranching initially and also sometimes for, for soy uh, farming. And, That's uh, big down there? Uh, it's quite big. And uh, there has been an enormous – the good news has been an enormous drop in the deforestation rate in the Brazilian Amazon especially. The, the peak year was 2005, 2006, and it's gone down by more than half. The deforestation rate in Brazil has gone way, way down. You attribute uh, that to what? It's been better policing by the Brazilian government, frankly. Uh, I mean, it's enormous areas to police. They have very few wardens or, or, or you know, agents who can check this. They actually collaborate with the U.S. Uh, space agency, and they get real-life images of, of new fires. And so they can send agents right there instead of trying to comb over an area the size of the U.S. You send an agent right to where you see the fire from the satellite, and you can find someone, some uh, rancher who is cutting down much, much more forest than he's allowed. He's, he's allowed to cut down a little bit, but he's not allowed to cut down anything like the amount that he tries to. So now they levy enormous fines on these ranchers, and they'll, they'll typically back off from doing that. Coming up, Charles Munn on his unrivaled Jaguar guarantee. South America's ecotourism industry may help shield the region's wildlife from extinction, but on the continent where the safari originated, poachers still abound. You know, I could describe it that if, God forbid, what was happening to elephants were happening to people, we would call it a massive genocide. Right. They're being exterminated for ivory. On a mass level. Correct. Using the latest technology, and that's weapons, cell phones, sat phones, vehicles, aircraft, helicopters, and the ease by which massive amounts of ivory can be illegally shipped to markets has never been greater. To hear more about Richard Ruggiero's story, go to heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. 
With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. These days, Charles Munn is a legend, named one of the leading experts on wildlife tourism by Condé Nast Traveler, featured in National Geographic, Newsweek, and Time. But even before the world was watching, Mun was working on his mission to save the rainforest, which began fittingly by connecting with the people who live in it. Well, I used to help Peruvians and Bolivians and Ecuadorians and Brazilians get involved in ecotourism to protect parks. So that's back since 1980. I mean, uh, I've, been, I've been using that as the argument. I only got more involved in actually trying to create sustainable systems with local partners uh, in the 90s and in the last, say, 15 years. So I had to actually get more involved and try to actually organize trips to send people to see jaguars. For instance, we, we guarantee that people will see jaguars. And they typically see them for hours a day, uh, hunting right in front of you. It's amazing. So t- tell me, who's the average client you have? Or the, what part of the world, if any, is it completely mixed? Or are there parts of the world that more crave the, the jaguar, the Brentonal experience? The British are absolutely nature-crazed. Right. There's no culture that loves their nature and their wildlife more than the Brits. And so they are an enormous uh, segment, uh, you know, outsized segment compared to their population. What, there are 60 million people in the U.K., and they must represent you know, 30% or 40% of all guests coming to see jaguars and giant otters and, and, they, they're, and also the large birds. They love their birds like uh, no other culture in the world, really. Did you have to customize your flotels? Well, we had to design uh, the first ever flotel that had rooms as big as a hotel room. So I think our... Our flotel rooms, our Jaguar suites, and I think they're the largest standard rooms on any ship in fresh water, maybe even in salt water in the world. It's like an ocean liner. Except it sits in one place right in the middle of the Jaguar. So the Jaguars walk by. In fact, you have a Jaguar window on one side and a much bigger picture window on the other side. But we have a Jaguar window on the, on the side closer to the forest because there's a Jaguar alarm. If a Jaguar walks by, you look through the window and see it walk right by your uh, cabin. Any danger? They don't seem to find anything interesting uh, on the uh, floating hotel, no. They, Not a problem, ever. Well, there's nothing. There are no snacks there. They're, and they're busy trying to hunt uh, alligators. Uh, and, That's and, their primary you know, source of food? Alligators and enormous guinea pigs. They're the 120-pound guinea pigs. They're called capybaras. They love right, those. My capybaras, I see. They'll eat capybaras and they eat the caimans, actually. They're called the caimans. caimans. Now, when local. they eat the caimans, I mean, I've seen horrific videos of snakes devouring uh, quilled animals and, and passing this through their system. Then eventually they die. They, they cut the steak open and see the quills sticking through their digestive tract. But when you when these animals, what do they do? They they, they split up them open, they cut them open somehow, and then eat the inside? They don't eat the skin of the caiman. Uh, they eat almost everything. They eat uh, almost they, they, everything. The jaguar has the most powerful bite of any cat in the world. So the tiger and the lion is bigger than a jaguar. But these big jaguars in this area... They grow much bigger than the ones in the Amazon because they eat so well their whole lives. The genes are the same, but they grow to enormous. They grow to their maximum size because they eat perfectly their whole lives. Uh, the males are 350 pounds. That's a pretty big cat. 
That's bigger than a that's the size of a female lion, more or less. So they and they have much harder bite. They have bigger jaw muscles than either lions or tigers, and they can crush the back of the skull of a, of a full grown cow or of a uh, alligator or caiman like this. So uh, once they've crushed the back of the skull, they've basically killed the caiman. They've paralyzed it, but then it's going to die immediately at me by, by cutting the spinal cord. Sure. It's, it's basically paralyzed. It hasn't yeah. died in the first two seconds. It's still alive, but it's paralyzed. And, and they'll, they'll, eat, they'll eat the thing for several days in a row. They'll eat for three, four, five days in a row and be just sit there with their distended belly because they've right. eaten so much. They'll eat almost everything. They'll, they can chew up the bones. They can chew up the skin. They, they, their, their, their jaw strength is incredible. It's just like a really good taffy to them. It's just a really strong. Pretty much. The funny thing is one, some jaguars that we were studying, tracking them, they would, they would walk next to a, a field with young calves, you know, baby cows. And the other side of the fence, there were some, a little, there was a little pigsty with some little piglets that were kind of seemed bite size. And these jaguars, day after day, night after night, would walk between the calves and the little piglets and ignore them, walk down to the river and jump on these things that are, you know, these caimans that are basically like uh, dinosaurs. That's what I they crave. Yeah, they just were, had been taught by their they didn't mothers. They pork or beef. They had been taught by their mothers to eat caimans. And so they kind of ignored these things that would be much easier <laughs> to eat and much yeah, easier like, to kill and easier to like, eat. It was, a, it was like a party. There was hors d'oeuvres everywhere. And that's one of the reasons we're not too scared of them because their mother didn't – you eat what your mother gave you as a kid. That's what you love to eat. And that's why the jaguars don't show interest in us because their mothers didn't teach them to eat us because they don't know if we taste good. They don't know if we're dangerous. If there are two of us, they don't know what the second human will do, you know. And so that jaguars are not crazy, uh, you know, crazy predators who just kill senselessly. If they make one wrong move, they can break their ankle, let's say, and then they'll die of starvation. Right. And that's what we see the jaguars do. They jump down eight or ten feet onto these uh, big caimans that are like nine feet long, that weigh more than the cat. And if they if they twist their ankle or break their their ankle, that their, their wrist, yeah, you'll see every year or two you'll see one of the fifty jaguars that we know well that will let you watch them in real time all through the day. You'll see them with really really bad limp. I mean, they can barely even walk. And in that situation, they, they they often recover. It's amazing how tough they are. But uh, that's the most that's well, one of the biggest dangers. When the ones dangers. don't recover, what do they do? I'm sure they uh, I'm sure they starve. You know, they they go into the bushes and and probably Later. hide and starve. You know? Yeah. Do you still have a home in the U.S. at all? I do. I have a home in Baltimore. You yes. still do, in your mm-hmm. native area there. Ne- next to that forest with the big trees. You do. Yeah. You do. And how much time are you in the U.S. every year? Uh, every year it varies a little, uh, several months. I try to catch the spring migration here in the eastern U.S. Uh, in April and May. But uh, the big season for the Jaguars is really ja- is really June, July, August, September, October, November. Sweltering hot or it's a bit cooler there in the southern hemisphere? Uh, June and July can be quite cool, quite nice that way. September, October gets quite hot. Right. Uh, October, a few uh, rains start a little bit more. Just enough rain starts in early November that it cools off. So my favorite time of the year to do Jaguar watching is actually early November. But because uh, some guidebooks say November is the beginning of the rainy season in the Pantanal. People go, oh, the rainy season. Well, that's actually the rainy season is a blessing because it's so hot sometimes in October. You're just praying for some rain. Do you think that some of what you've learned and some of what you've created and uh, supported down there, that could be applied to here at home as well? Well, I'm interested in uh, in the cougars or mountain lions that exist in Florida. There are several hundred of them. They call them the Florida panther. That's a local name for them. There are several hundred of them, and you don't see them. But I think with the right techniques, you could see them. And it's probably the most graceful of all. The, one of the most graceful cats is, is, the, is the puma or mountain lion when it's, when it's hunting. So, so if you and I decide to open up the Flotel business, that's in the Everglades? In the Everglades, oh, yeah. The Everglades. Everglades. So what are they eating? What's their copy? White-tailed deer. <laughs> They're eating lots and lots of white-tailed deer. And, of course, in the U.S. So we're safe. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. Once again, any large cat as a human alone, don't trust any large cat. If you're alone and don't turn your back on it. Right. Cats don't like to attack if there's several of you because they don't know what the second human's capable of. Right. They don't have direct experience with how dangerous we are or are not because most of the time, unless we have a gun, we're not very dangerous for a, right. a large cat. I think the wolves in Yellowstone would be interesting because, I don't know, the wolf tourism, I'm not quite sure how it works, but I understand there are a lot of people who love the wolf tourism uh, you know, tra- travelers who want to see the wolves badly. I guess it's on the western edge of the national park, and then there, and then the ranchers near the park hate the wolves. And I think the wolf hunting has been op- reopened in that area. So that's an interesting uh, situation where I'd like to see. I'd like to know more about how the the wolf conservation could uh, could create green jobs there and help protect wolves. Right. There was a New York Times story about how boring ecotourism is in the Amazon. That was a a very unfortunate story. But tell me the, about that. The writer was a TV producer for one of the major networks who went to the Amazon and came back and said, I didn't see anything, basically. And that's because he – the Amazon's complicated. You have to know where the fruit tree is that has all the action. If you don't go to that fruit tree, you may not see a lot in the rest of the forest. But that fruit tree is stuffed full of monkeys and birds, and it's just amazing. There's no substitute for knowing exactly what's going on tree by tree in the forest. In a square mile of, of typical Amazon forest, it's unhunted and has all the original animals. Only two or three trees are stuffed full of animals that day. But you need to know which trees those are. And you have to be at those trees at the right time. Then you're going to have a great time. You'll get the impression that there are more animals in the forest than there actually are because they're all concentrated in one tree. Right. Yeah, are there still any uncontacted Indians down there as far as there you know? There are uncontacted Indians. and um, More Brazil than Peru or both? There are some pockets, especially in Peru and Brazil and Venezuela, where there are uncontacted tribes. That doesn't mean that they don't know that the outside world exists. That means that they're choosing to live out of contact. And they are out of contact, uh, but it's not that they have no idea that there's something else. There's, there's other stuff out there. But they choose to avoid it because they, they all know from tradition that it's dangerous because it typically is dangerous when they come in contact with Western civilization. We worked a lot with Indians who we helped title. While I was working for WCS, we raised a million dollars for land titling of Indians to create a big buffer zones around the national parks. And uh, that was quite effective, and many of the Indians that we worked with were some of our best executives and informants and gave us new ideas about how to make the rainforest more interesting. One of them who had been working with me on macaws said, uh, oh, you want to come to my house uh, a couple hours away, and I've got a macaw there. And I said, oh, you mean you took – you're working with macaws with me, and you and you cut a tree down and took the baby macaw as a pet. That's no good. He says, no, you don't quite understand. Come to my house, and I'll show you. So we, we drove a couple hours by river to his house, and it was the end of the day. And he said, they'll probably show up any minute. I said, what do you mean they'll show up any minute? And suddenly these giant, you know, these scarlet macaws flew out of the forest and landed right next to the house. I said, what's going on? And then they gave them snacks. They gave them some corn from their cornfield, and the, and the macaws ate that, and then they flew away. I said, no, no, those were those were pet macaws, we never clip their wings. So they just come and go. They'll come and get snacks. They'll top off the tank a couple times a day. They're eating in the forest. They're wild macaws, but they come back to get snacks from us. I said, you're kidding. Really? You mean, because the second baby macaw, they have two babies. The second macaw starves to death normally. That's part of macaw biology. They want to raise one healthy one and the second one's an insurance policy in case the first one's a dud. Oh, wow. So the second one almost always starves. I said, well, why don't we raise the second one in a field lab and release it? It'll come back to get snacks for the rest of its life. And, you know, Alec and and uh, and National Geographic photographers and, and guests will all get amazing photos of wild macaws that are like dual citizens. They'll come in and visit us and then leave again. You saw some of those birds. I think one of them was telling you you were a great actor, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> with bobbing its head, you know, and yes, indeed, you're a great it was, actor. It was, it was doing yeah. lines from all my greatest films. That's right. Now, how much more do you see yourself doing this kind of thing? I mean, isn't there a part of you that wants to kick back and finish the whole thing or, or have a nice uh, autumn of your years where it all started on uh, your five-acre ancestral home in Baltimore bordering the 50 acres that you secured with your uh, selling all your Halloween candy? <laughs> Uh, well, I'd like to be a little bit less involved with worrying about whether we have enough ripe tomatoes in the kitchen. I'd, I'd like to be a little less involved in making sure that every single transfer from an airport to a hotel goes properly. I'd like to be less involved in the day-to-day -day operations and more involved with thinking about things like the Florida Panther. Uh, you know, we know now we have techniques that can be applied that have legs that can be used over and over again. There's no reason to have to rediscover the wheel. We know how to make macaws ridiculously fun and attractive, and it's easy. And yet, uh, even when the country of Costa Rica, we propose that they have what I call assisted fledging. The second baby's going to starve anyway. Take it from the nest, feed it in a field lab, and release it. And it'll come back, and, and guests will get pictures of scarlet macaws mm -hmm. next to, in national parks or next to national parks in Costa Rica. Uh, and they have a million tourists, and fewer than 1% get a good photo of a scarlet macaw at the moment. But if they did what I said, they'd have 99% of the people would be getting good photos of scarlet macaws. And that would mean people might spend an extra night in the country, and a million people spending an extra night, you can do the math. So uh, and yet Costa Rica doesn't doesn't take that suggestion seriously. I suggested that to them twenty years think, ago. Why do you think that is? Because Costa Rica is renowned now as an ecotourism spot. Well, they just outlawed all all feeding of wild animals. You can't even feed a bird in your backyard in Costa Rica. Well, what, what is their thinking? What do they think? I don't happening? know. I don't know. I think it's purist biologists who have the training that I have, but who don't understand that if we don't. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a continuum of you know putting an animal in a cage and making it suffer, and having a wild animal that you give a snack. And there's everything in between. You can have wild animals you don't touch at all. Wild animals, you give them a little snack to make them easier to see. If you can protect a forest by giving a few wild animals a little bit of a snack that doesn't hurt them, and you can protect a million acres of forest by doing that, I'd much prefer that than torching the place to carbon, which is what happens literally. I think biologists have to be more dynamic about using their knowledge of animal biology and animal behavior to make animals more accessible and more visible. I challenge my friends, and people are going to be mad at me for saying this, but I challenge my friends who go to Costa Rica, literally, to come back with trophy photos of wildlife. And they come back with precious little in the way of trophy photos of wildlife that could compete with what they saw in Kenya or in South Africa. And that's because the animals are there, but you have to be able to get close enough to them because the animals are smaller and they're not dangerous, but they're more colorful, but you need to be able to get close to them. And one of the ways you do that is by giving them a structured snack that is harmless. Approved, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, you can feed animals the wrong way, and I'm opposed to that, but you can also do something intelligent and make some animals more visible than they would be otherwise. You can see amazing birds. Uh, and, and I actually asked the Costa Ricans, is anyone in the room? There were a lot of scientists in the room at the last meeting where they said, no, they're not going to allow assisted fledging of macaws. Has anyone been to Sydney or Melbourne where, where cockatoos are backyard feeder birds? I said, you should have 100,000 scarlet macaws in Costa Rica, not 1,600 like they have now. Every home in the lowlands in Costa Rica should have scarlet macaws as backyard feeder birds. What's wrong with that model? And there is nothing wrong with that model. But they, they actually, instead of heading in that direction, doing tests, they've actually gone in the opposite direction. What part beyond the South American rainforest? What are other places you crave? I, I want to go to Antarctica. You yeah. do? Yeah. Why? And I haven't been to the Galapagos yet, which is embarrassing. You haven't? No, no. Right. I would expect you no, would have no. uh, well, spent course, many summers there. Well, they already know what they're doing with ecotourism and conservation. They don't need any tips from me. They don't me. need any consulting. No, no. They don't need any tips from me. But I maintain that we have better wildlife viewing in the Pantanal in Brazil than even than they have. We have a lot of large mammals, giant otters, uh, jaguars, 
a lot of large birds, uh, uh, capybaras, the world's largest rodent, as I said, the giant right. guinea pig, these big uh, big uh, alligators and you know, the caimans. And so I think I may, we have four species of monkeys, see them ridiculously well. We have the largest parrot in the world, the highest in macaw there. So I maintain that we have something similar to or even in some ways better than the Galapagos. The Galapagos has no there's large no predators. The, there's no hunting. Well, the animals just aren't there. In the Galapagos. Well, they have other very interesting animals, other animals no question yeah. about it. But, but the ones uh, you're talking about. They don't have colorful, big mammalian predators like uh, that I'm so talking about. So the reason about. you're, you, as you said before, the reason that your situation there uh, is as vivid as it is and is as conducive to this ecotourism thing is the lack of hunting, correct? These animals it's feel safe. The, the, the country of Brazil outlawed sport hunting in 1967, and that's amazing. I'm not even sure what they were thinking, but in fact, it's been amazing for my work because I've seen the quality of wildlife viewing uh, in Brazil increase so much in the last 30 years. I just can't believe it. So a lot of places in the world are declining. Uh, the wildlife is declining. But in Brazil, it's a wildlife bonanza now. You can see pink dolphins, uh, ridiculously tame, right outside of the city of Manaus. You can fly to Manaus, you know, American Airlines in five hours from Miami and have pink dolphins right around your legs. They don't care. And so Brazil has amazing stuff that I would never have predicted, that, for instance, that I could see jaguars on demand. I would never have guessed that was possible. And I spent years in the rainforest. I saw 25, 30 jaguars in the Amazon rainforest. In the Amazon, they're in the forest hunting uh, wild pigs. And so you don't see them on the riverbank. But in the Pantanal, they're hunting the capybaras and the caimans on the riverbank, which is where those things live. And that's why you see them. You know, I have a story that I don't think I told you. Did I tell you what was happening in that blind while we were waiting for the macaws to come down? Please, I'm on tenterhooks. So it was, uh, there was a cameraman. Uh, one end of the blind was only, what, uh, big enough for four or five people. Yes, it was small. And so I had my colleague, uh, Peruvian colleague, Eduardo Nykander, was in the blind with me. He was sitting next to me, and you were just beyond him, and then I think Kim was just beyond him, and then the cameraman was sitting somewhere in there. And we were, we were waiting for the macaws to come down and eat clay, and there was a, a raging uh, flood next to us. It was January. That was a crazy time to go. It was a difficult time to, for this to work. Right. So the rain let up, and the, the flood was coming up, and it was starting to come into the blind. It was actually starting, threatening to wash away the blind while we were sitting there. Did you notice that? Uh, I was so engrossed okay, by well, the... well, there were large tree trunks going by us at about 10 miles an hour. Right. Uh, and one of them, if one of them had hit the edge of the blind, that would have been the end. And there were rocks coming down this 100-foot-high clay wall not far from you and Kim, you know, these rocks coming down the size of your head, coming down 100, and they were smashing into the water. Did you notice that? And that I heard. I heard like a little plunk. I, I heard one. Remember, I heard a sound that I thought it was something had fallen down in the rain you know, into the river. Because I, I know what happens to those banks. Sometimes the whole bank collapses. Uh -huh. But there's a third thing that was happening all at the same time where we're all waiting for the macaws or the end to come down or not. And that is uh, that uh, Eduardo Nykander sort of lifted his eyebrows and looked over in the corner and, and sort of indicated I should look down there. And I looked down there and there was a venomous snake had come into the blind, something no. that people are terrified of, snakes in the rainforest. But there was a venomous snake, a small one, but it was, it was about six, seven inches, maybe maybe a foot long. It had crawled because the flood was coming up, and it had scared this fer de lance snake into the blind. And so this fer de lance snake was sort of making its way over towards the two of you, you and Kim. Right. And I said to Eduardo in Spanish, I whispered to him, I said, keep them busy by whispering to them and tell them a few stories. And so he was telling you all a couple of stories and you were listening to his little stories and as he was talking quietly. And I had a little stick in my hand and I put the stick on the head of the snake and I kept watching you oh all. My God. Hang on a second. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so I'm, and I was sort of smiling, listening to the story, but meanwhile the snake's wriggling while I had it uh, pinned down near its head. And then I had a Swiss Army knife and I cut the snake's head off. So I'm sorry to say. I mean, I, I'm afraid I couldn't deal with that snake in any no, other please. way at that moment. <laughs> I'm grateful. It was a small snake, but 
Maybe I'm going to get in trouble now. But uh, so I didn't tell you that. And this is the first time you heard that. Oh, my God. And everyone's terrified they're going to see a snake when they go to the rainforest. And, you know, actually. I was our, afraid they were going to come in my bedroom when I was in the little Well, exactly. You know, yeah. But I mean, so here we had the, the, the raging flood with the huge logs going by, a venomous snake and these big boulders coming down the hillside. And you guys were, I think, somewhat oblivious. And then the macaws came down and we filmed it and it all worked well. You know what's great about going on these trips with a guy like you, a naturalist who's got a PhD from Princeton, and all these kind of fancy that's uh, piled solar, higher and deeper. PhD uh, piled, piled higher and deeper is B- BS. <laughs> MS is more of the same. PhD piled <laughs> higher and deeper. Well, yeah. being with someone where it's piled higher and deeper, the great thing is, as I may die in the rainforest there in the blind, but at least I'll know how I die. <laughs> you'll explain to me. It's the it's the, it's the law, the genus, the and the species. The, I'll be you'll able see to, this yeah. snake that just bit you was yeah. a what's it called a fer de lance. A fer de lance. It's a, it's a French name for a South American and Central American pit viper related to the rattlesnake and the copperhead. But I don't want to, like, terrify people because, uh, I mean, that's one of the few fer de lance I've ever seen. It just happened to be in the blind with <laughs> the you and Kim. <laughs> in a recent interview with The Telegraph, Charles Munn captured why, as a zoologist, he promotes encounters with animals. Quote, There's a continuum from pets and animals in zoos to a wild animal in nature approaching you to really wild species that are terrified of you. I'm willing to use any point on that continuum, except captivity, to promote forest conservation. I'd rather have the monkeys running wild, but realistically, it's no longer an option. Unquote. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. (sighs) Okay, fine, I'll fess up. All the new summer stuff I got, it's on sale at Kohl's. And the deals are so good. Like our Sonoma Goods for Life patio furniture, it was 30% off. Got 30% off backyard games, too. And even picked up grilling tools for 20% off. Best part? I saved an extra 20% and got it in an hour with free store pickup. So now we're all set for summer, and I'm pretty sure we've got a cookout planned every weekend. Select styles 20% offer ends June 27th. Some exclusions apply. See store or kohls.com for details. Don't think that you know everything about your child because there's something that they're not telling you. If I knew that this was going on, I would have went out there and brought my child back home. When Africa Hardy died in 2014, it seemed completely random, but it wasn't. It was part of a pattern. This is Algorithm, a podcast investigating a modern serial killer and how he could have been stopped. Listen to Algorithm Now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.